So to what lengths would you be willing to go to express your love towards somebody else? If you're married, my guess is that there have probably been some circumstances where you've done something a little bit crazy, especially in the early days, just to, to demonstrate the length of that or the depth of that love. And if you're single, chances are there's maybe been a boyfriend or a girlfriend or just somebody else in your life that you care deeply about, that you were willing to do pretty much anything for them. There's actually a study, a survey that I saw of hundreds of Americans, thousands of Americans, that essentially asked that question, how far would you go for love? And they were asking the question in relationship to a long-distance relationship. How far is too far away? And so they took the survey, and it came back that the average distance a person in America is willing to go by car in order to sustain a love relationship is four hours and 47 minutes. That apparently is the, is the length that people will go for love, four hours and 47 minutes, which means that you would not, if you live in western Pennsylvania, you would not be willing to have a relationship with someone in Philadelphia. Not that anybody here would want to do that anyway. But it does mean that you'd be willing to fall in love with somebody from Cleveland, And so there's that. I mean, there's that side of it. Another thing that was interesting from that survey was that 44% of people said they'd be more inclined to enter into a long-distance relationship if the other person lived in a place that was a nice location, like Miami or Hawaii, it said. They'd be willing. So apparently, it doesn't have so much to do with love. It's got more to do with great weather, right? And if great weather is the essential in order to have a long-distance relationship, My guess then is that nobody in western Pennsylvania has a long-distance relationship because our weather isn't always that great. But it is a great place to be as we've been celebrating, as I'm celebrating on this on this particular weekend. So as we think about that, as we come into the text that we are going to be looking at today, it dovetails together because we're going to be taking a look in this passage at what length people were willing to go in order to express and to maintain their love. Now, not a romantic sort of love, something that is actually more important than that. Today we're coming back to our studies through the book of Revelation, the blessing and the promise. And uh, we started this a couple of weeks ago. I hope you've been with us. I hope you have your journal. I hope you're, uh, you're checking all of this out. Welcome to those of you, by the way, on the Moon Campus and, and uh, in our classic venue, and those of you online, it's good to have you tuned into this as well. And we're getting on now into chapters 2 and chapter 3. Those two chapters actually deal with seven different churches that this letter is addressed to. The letter was given from God the Father through Jesus, through the angel to John, who writes it down, and now we have it. And he is carrying this forward, and we're going to see this letter that is going out to these different churches. And there's a message for each one of them. And the place we're going to be today is a passage that has already been read for you. If you don't already have it open, go ahead and open up to Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to be in the first seven verses here today. And as we dig into this, we see that there are these seven churches, and we're going to take a look at the first of those churches, which is the church in Ephesus. Ephesus, that's probably a name that most of you are familiar in one way or another because there is a book in the Bible called Ephesians, and that is a letter that was written from the Apostle Paul to this group of people, and it's a very prominent place. So that's where we're going to be, and uh, as we get started into this, we need to lay a little bit of groundwork as to exactly what we are talking about here. A little bit of groundwork. I'm just calling this message the message to Ephesus because it is just that. We're going to be simple, we're going to be straightforward. 
as we dig into this. But in order to understand it, we do need to lay a little bit of a groundwork, and that's why we're going to jump into the intro to Ephesus. A lot of things we want to say. Let's go ahead and take a look at the text. Chapter 2 and verse 1, John records the words of Jesus. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So, these words are addressed to the angel. It says, the angel of the church, and it is from God himself through Jesus. This is ultimately what Jesus has revealed to John. That's what we have going on here. Now, if there's any question as to exactly who these people are or who these stars are, all you have to do is look back one verse into the last verse of chapter 1. We talked about this last week. It identifies that these seven stars are actually these angels of the churches, and the seven lampstands are the churches themselves. And Jesus, the glorified Jesus, is seen as walking around there among these lampstands. Now, it's clear that these are the words of Jesus that are being delivered through the angel to the church, and the angel, as we pointed out last week, is most likely sort of a a guardian angel, one who wants to be sure that the message makes it all the way to the church, and the church has an appropriate understanding of what is being delivered to them. So, the church in Ephesus is the one, it's the first of these seven churches. And in the ancient world, as we think about what is, who is Ephesus, the church of Ephesus, or the, I shouldn't say the church of Ephesus, but Ephesus itself was a big deal. It was a big deal. It was the fourth largest city that was there in the Roman Empire. If we want to go ahead and take a look at a map here, you can see Ephesus is right here on the western shore of what was Asia Minor at the time. This is modern-day Turkey. Patmos, where John is receiving the vision, is just off the coast here. It's the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. It's a big deal. It was a large city at about a quarter million people that lived there, which was a a very large city at that time. And uh, this is where Paul ministered and uh, where we see a significant amount of business and trade and, and politics. And it's also a location where there is religious uh plurality that is going on. There are a lot of different people that are being worshipped there in Ephesus, and far and away the most prominent of all of them is this goddess known as Artemis. Artemis. It was a big deal in that day. Here you can see the temple that was actually built to Artemis. It would have looked something like this. This is an artist's representation, but it would have looked something like this. It was a big, big deal. It's two times the size of a modern football field. It's four times the size of the Parthenon and Athens in Athens, got a hundred marble pillars, 55 feet tall. It's uh, just an amazing structure. There's no surprise that it was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There's not much left of it today. There's basically one of those columns that you can still see, see standing if you go to Ephesus, but it was a big deal back in the day. There were also three other temples that were there in the city of Ephesus that people worshiped around. One of them was to the Roman emperor at the time, Domitian. He was the one who was the Roman emperor at the end of the first century when John receives this vision, when John begins 
to write this down. You can see there's not a whole lot left there. There's not a whole lot left in all of Ephesus. There's lots of ruins. It's a very fascinating place to visit, but uh, there's not much going on life-wise there in these days. And it's in this context that Aquila and Priscilla come and they begin to minister the gospel. And Paul shows up and Apollos, and they're doing tremendous ministry there in that city. Paul actually stays for over two years to preach there, which is much longer than he stayed anywhere as he's making these missionary journeys around, but he chooses to stay and to minister there in that place, and the gospel springs up, and a church rises up right there in Ephesus. It was hard going, to be sure, but he pressed on, and he hands the baton over to Timothy, and Timothy hands the baton over to the apostle John himself, this same John who writes Revelation, and John has a ministry there for a time also. Now, fast forward some 30 years from the time when Paul was there, and Timothy, and John. Fast forward 30 years, and you find Ephesus in the form that we find it here when we see the book of Revelation and what it has to say about Ephesus. So the words that are written to the church in Ephesus, they actually follow a formula, and it's the same formula that applies for all seven of the different churches that are going to be addressed in Romans, or excuse me, Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. The same formula, exact same formula for all seven of these messages. I kind of think of them as messages instead of letters to the churches, even though that's oftentimes the way that they are described because the whole letter of Revelation is a letter to be sure, but each of these are sort of like an oracle. They're sort of like just a, a message that is given to each one of them, and they follow this form, and this is the same for all of them. They begin with the address, and here we've already seen the address, and the interesting thing about those is that in each one of the addresses, you will see that there is an attribute of Jesus that is pulled out of his glorified description there in chapter 1, and a different piece of it is attached to the address in the case of each of these seven churches. And in this particular case, in the first one, it's about the seven stars in his right hand, and it's about the golden lampstands that he walks around. That's the piece that was drawn out of chapter 1 for this one. And we'll see some others as we make our way along. After the address comes, the, they talk about the strengths that were going on there in that church, and then the weaknesses that were going on in that church. In case you're curious, the three of the churches, it says there are both strengths and weaknesses. Two of the churches, it says there are just strengths. Two of the churches, it says there are just weaknesses. And we'll see that as we make our way along. Then it goes on to the solution, the call to hear, and then the reward. All of these messages to these seven churches are going to follow that same formula, and we'll see it. Same formula, all seven churches. But one of the things that comes to my mind as I think about this is why seven why seven churches? We know that there were more than seven churches in the region at the time. If we can pull up that next map, I think that we can go ahead and see this. So here are the seven churches of Revelation. They're kind of right in this pattern, but there are others. In fact, here's Laodicea. It's the last of the seven churches that is mentioned. Colossae is just to the south. There's a book of the Bible that is written to the Colossian people. It's there. It's not included in these seven churches. Hierapolis is just to the north. You've got Lystra and Derbe and Antioch and Iconium and all sorts of churches here that are existing at this time. Why just seven in Revelation? Well, there's a good reason for that. If you remember back to where we were just a couple of weeks ago as we gave an introduction to the whole of this book, we talked about the importance of the number seven. It comes up more than 50 times in the book of Revelation, and we have said that the number seven is actually a very symbolic number because it deals with a number of different 
things. And it doesn't necessarily just mean seven. It's a number of completion. It's a number of perfection. And so we can use the, the number seven, and I believe that that's being used that way here, to apply to more than seven churches. Yes, these are actual historic churches that are being written to, but the application can go far beyond that. There's no doubt that this circular letter would have also been read in some of these other churches in these other locations. No doubt about that. And there's an application for them. And just as there's an application for all of them, there's also an application for us. You will see that the things that are contained in these messages are things that we can glean and we can learn and grow from ourselves. So, with that in mind, there are some different truths, some lessons that we can learn from the church here in Ephesus and what is written to them. So I want to give you a few of these, and uh, that's how we're going to navigate our time. So the first of those is this, is to stand strong in the truth. To stand strong in the truth is where we get this kicked off. As we've already pointed out, the formula of each of these churches moves from the address, which we've already seen, to the strengths, which is the good news, to the weaknesses, which is the bad news. So let me just ask you, if I came to you and I said, all right, I've got good news and bad news, how many of you, by a show of hands, want to hear the good news first? All right, that's like three of you. How many of you want to hear the bad news first? Wow, that's like almost all the rest. How many of you just don't want to raise your hand to answer my question? All right, you raised your hand to tell me you don't want to raise your hand. And they say there are hypocrites in the church. All right, well, psychologists will tell you, and in psychology today, you can actually read the fact that you are not out of line for most people. Almost 80% of people want to hear the bad news first. And the reason they want to hear the bad news first is because you get it out of the way. Then you've got good news that follows, and hopefully you're going to be in a better mood, and things are going to be better as you move past that. But surveys also show, or studies show, that it's actually the people who take the good news first that do a better job or are more inclined to actually deal with the bad news and make improvements in their lives if they're willing to go in that direction. So apparently it's a good thing that we have the good news that comes first here in our passage. Let's look at the good news, verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary." That is very high praise that we have right here. I would love for Jesus to show up and say this about our church. I would love that. I would pray toward that end. Truth of the matter is that the church can be a difficult thing. It, there can be challenges that come along our way. It requires long hours and strenuous effort on the part of people, and oftentimes that happens in the midst of great opposition that comes our way or comes the way of the church. And that's how it was for Ephesus. Notice that twice here in these two verses, verse 2 and 3, they are praised for their patient endurance. The religious landscape there in Ephesus was polytheistic. In other words, as we've already said, there were a number of different gods that were being worshipped. Certainly there was Artemis, as we pointed out. There was the Roman emperor Domitian that was also demanding worship at the same time. So the Christian church comes along and they says, no, 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 that's wrong. All of you people, all you quarter million people who are worshiping those gods, you're wrong. You need to stop that and you need to start worshiping the one true God who is our God. 
How do you think that message is going over in Ephesus? Yeah, exactly. Not very well. Not very well. And because of that, there's all sorts of things that they would be subject to. They would be shunned by people who had formerly perhaps been friends. There would have been civic leaders that they would have been at odds with, that would come against them. There'd be boycotting of any businesses that they owned. There were people who were making money off of little statues, and you can read in in Acts 19 about how Paul got in big trouble about that, and he ended up having to leave town. It's not a message that is very popular, but they are strong to take it forward, and they're being praised here for their patient endurance of the things that they're going through because they were not willing to shrink back from their faith. Good for them. Good for them, and praise God for that. Their patient endurance, they're praised for. On top of that, they're also praised for standing strong in their spiritual and doctrinal discernment. There were false teachers who came on the scene, who had their own message, and it sounded good. That's what false teachers do well. It sounds kind of good, but they were twisting it, and they were leading other people astray. And interestingly enough, do you know the Apostle Paul actually predicted that that would be the case? And in Acts chapter 20, we actually read this, that the Apostle Paul had essentially predicted. He said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And that's exactly what happened. Paul was dead on. But what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that the people didn't fall prey to that. They had strong enough leaders or they had strong enough wisdom there in the church that they didn't get hoodwinked by this. They were able to overcome and they're being praised. Back in our text in verse 6, one of those dangerous groups is specifically called out. It says, yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we don't know a whole lot about the Nicolaitans. There's not much that's told. There's only one more time in the scriptures that it comes up, and that's actually one of the other churches that we'll see here in a few weeks. But the evidence seems to point to the fact that these are folks that are advancing a form of syncretism. And what that means, the word you can actually pick up from it, it's like they're trying to synchronize what the church believed, what the scriptures taught, and what the culture was all about trying to bring those two things together so that there might be a greater harmony that exists. And this is what these false teachers are teaching. They're saying, yes, absolutely, hold to what you believe in the Scriptures, but you can hold to that and you can still embrace this. And this were things like idolatry and, and uh, the emperor worship and even all the way to sexual immorality is in view here. It promoted living in such a way that said, you can live however you want to live. Because you already have God in your heart, so you can live however you want to live, and it's not going to have any spiritual impact on you in a negative way. You can imagine how that message would be embraced, right? I can do whatever I want, and I'm still good with God. Yeah, I love that. They wouldn't have had any trouble embracing that, and that's why false teachers gained this this footing, footing. But the church in Ephesus was standing strong against all of that. They're holding fast to the truth, and they're being praised for it. Now, this is a very important message for us as well, because we're people who also need to fight this idea of syncretism, this idea of taking what it is that we believe, what we believe the scriptures teach us, 
and not allowing the message of the culture to get wound in together with that because there are plenty of people who are trying to do that in our day. There are plenty of denominations in our world today that are struggling because of the fact that there's the syncretistic ideas that are happening in their church and they're embracing things and they're saying, you know what, the scriptures always said that, but I'm not so sure the scriptures really mean that anymore. I think now they maybe mean this and we can embrace this and we can embrace that and you can see how that is a popular point of view as well because it doesn't put you so much at odds with the world that is around you anymore. All of a sudden, you're not at odds with them. You can just have closer fellowship with them. You can get along. You can do what they do. And everything's going to be perfectly fine. Well, everything is not going to be perfectly fine. We need to hold to the truth. Truth is truth. We need to stick with what it is. And whatever that requires of us when it comes to dealing with the culture in which we live, we need to simply embrace that fact because we have one Lord. We have one Savior who we serve. And it needs to be all about that. And whatever that requires of us, it requires of us. There's no, there's no surprise, really, that the Scriptures, especially Revelation, as we've already seen it, talk about the need for this patient endurance, why they're being praised for standing strong in the midst of all of the opposition that's coming against them. Because opposition is a real thing, and it's going to be an increasingly real thing, friends. As we hold strong to the truth, it's going to put us more and more at odds with the world that is around us. We simply need to embrace that idea. And our example can be these people in Ephesus who stood strong themselves and give us a beautiful model that we can learn from and that we can grow from. Unfortunately, there's more to be said. The text turns a very abrupt corner in verse 4. This is the bad news. It goes on and says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. These are the second essential we can learn from the church in Ephesus, and that's to stay tender to love. To stay tender to love. The beginning of verse 4 would be horrible words to hear. I have something against you. I have something against you. Do you ever have words you don't really like to hear? Might be your spouse saying, We need to talk. That's not something you want to hear. Or your mother yelling at you to get inside and uses both your middle, first and middle name to call you. Or your doctor says, your surgeon says, oops. Yeah, not something that you want, right? You don't want to hear that at all. And the, the Ephesians don't want to hear this, but, but they hear it anyway. They've lost their first love. If you've ever been in love, it's probably not very hard for you to really picture the idea that is in view here, and I don't think it's difficult for any of us to understand, regardless of what your background might have been. It's this overwhelming desire. It's this, this effortless drive, as it were, to do whatever that you can to bless the other person or to make it clear just how very, very important they are to you. First love is attentive, and it's eager, and it will drive more than four hours and 47 minutes for your sake. That's what first love is about. And this first love is also a component for the one who experiences the transforming love of Jesus. It's effortless then to be in God's word and to, to pray and to, to tell other people about your newfound faith. It just sort of bubbles out. That's what first love is all about here. But that can change. And for the Ephesians, it did. Over time, their enthusiasm for their first love, it, it faded. It shrunk back from where it was. 
Perhaps it was due to some of the constant attacks that they were enduring from people on the outside because they'd been standing strong in their faith. Or maybe it has to do with tension that was building up maybe between them and some other people on the inside of the church. Or maybe just because of the difficulty of life. Or maybe just because of routine and and familiarity. There are all kinds of things that can take us to a place where we start to shrink back from that first energetic, effortless love that we had for Jesus. And it can happen to all of us. And what's interesting to me is that this appraisal of them and their lack of first love is brought up at the same time as they're being praised for their hard work and for their doctrinal purity. What that means, friends, This is sobering. What that means is that you can be working hard for God. You can know what the Scriptures say. You can be serving, and your heart can be cold. All at the same time, that can happen. And for those of us who are looking on the degree to which we serve, the amount at which we show up to determine that I am good with God, have potentially a rude awakening. The Ephesians had a rude awakening. And we need to do some introspection in this regard. It's not enough to ask yourself if you know truth, if you're busy for the Lord. You need to ask yourself, do I love God and do I love other people? Because that's what this is digging after. If you love someone, you want to spend time with them and you want to get to know them as well as you possibly can. And that's a measure of whether or not that first love, sort of love, is, is in you. I told you that these messages to the church speak to us also. And I think this proves it true, doesn't it? First love can be a fragile thing. It can be something that we struggle to maintain. So we need to do that self-examination. I can tell you that it's not something that becomes automatic just because you've pastored a church for 25 years. It's something you need to continually, daily, be pushing after, be pursuing that you might know it, that you might live it, that it might fill you, that it might inspire who you are and how you live. And so we need to ask ourselves, where are we in that regard? And the scriptures, as we go on here in verse 5, give us a prescription for rekindling that sort of love if it's, if it's grown cold. And here's what it says, verse 5, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. Jesus helpfully gives us three steps to renewal when it comes to that first love, how to get it back. And the first of those steps is this. It's to remember where you were. The text says, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Remember what it was like when that first life, that first love was alive and it was vibrant. Remember what that was. Where were you going? What were you doing? How were you acting? What were you praying? What were you reading? Where were you? It's important that you would remember in your mind, what was that like? What did it look like? What did it feel like? Because apart from that, you don't have the target in mind to know where is it that you're being called to return to. You need to remember where you were. Secondly, you also need to repent of where you are. You need to repent of where you are. It just says it succinctly there in verse 5. Repent. To repent means to 
recognize that the first love has died out and to stop pretending that the depth of your love for Jesus is deeper than it is. For many of us, that's where we are. We're, we're pretending that, yeah, that first love is still strong. It is still awesome. It is still deep. It is still meaningful. And it's not. And the more that you say it is when it's not, the less inclined you are to go after because you can't admit to anybody, let alone yourself, the fact that you need to return to a love that you don't have. And so you're not going to be able to do anything because it's going to be the same as admitting the fact that you're not where you should be. And so you're locked and you're stuck. And you're pretending that things are something that those things actually aren't. It's a change of mind that says you're not just willing to stay on the path that you're on. And there's one more piece to this prescription that steps to renewal, and that's to return to what can be. It's to return to what can be. Verse 5 says, do the works you did at first. You start by remembering where you were, right? What did I do? Where did I go? What did that look like? What was I praying? What was I saying? What was I reading? All of that, absolutely. And then you return to what you were doing. And as you do so, you have the hope of that first love being rekindled in you. Now, some people will say, no, 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 it can't work that way. Because your heart has to be in it first before you're ever going to do something about it. That's where it's got to start. No, it doesn't. That's not what this is suggesting. It's not what other places in the Scripture suggest either. Do you remember when Jesus was talking about money? He was talking about generosity. Remember what he said? He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, he's saying, what you do, how you act, the steps that you take are the place that this gets started, and your heart will follow once that takes place. And that's the same thing that it's saying here. Just get back to doing the things that you were doing and you can watch for that heart to be rekindled bit by bit by bit along the way. This is a prescription that will help us to get there and it's vital that we follow this because if we don't, you look at the rest of verse 5, it says, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That is an extremely serious consequence. I'll remove your lampstand. What is the lampstand? It's the church. I'll remove your lampstand, it says. As we've seen already many times, that's what it's representing. And it's significant that it's a lampstand. Because what is a lampstand? A lampstand gives off what? Light. And that's what a church that loves Jesus, that's what people who love Jesus give off. They give off the light of Christ. And apart from that love, that first love being alive in us, the light is not going to shine. And if the light doesn't shine, then the message of the church that it really has to proclaim, that it's been called to send out, is gone. It's gone, friend. This is sobering. Where the love is gone, the light is snuffed out, and if the light of Christ is not evident, the future of the church is in jeopardy. Yes, it's that significant what it's saying. And unfortunately, there are a lot of churches that have lost their light, and it's gone. And they're continuing, maybe some of them, to, to do church, but it's lifeless. God's Spirit isn't working there. It's just in the process of dying. 
We need to do examination of ourselves, of our own lives, of our own church. To ask ourselves, are we in danger of this? Might we be headed there? We need to stay tender to love because our very existence depends on it. Tender to love. Not just tender to truth. Not just to hard work. Not just to service. But to love. Leads us to one last lesson quickly here as we wrap this up. That is to strive for future reward. That's what he says here. This is the final step of that formula I was showing you. It's each of these churches. Look at verse 7. Actually, it gives you the last two here. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, that's the call to hear. That's the second to the last one. And here's the last one too. The one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The one who conquers is the one who repents and lives in love. If there's no love, there is no life. That's not an overstatement. If there's no love, there is no life. But for the one who's repented, who's patiently endured in their faith and who lives in love, he is saying that he will eat of the, free, of, of the tree of life. Now, obviously, this tree of life image points us all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, to the book of Genesis. Remember the tree of life, Adam and Eve go, they eat, they shouldn't have, they're banned from going to that tree ever again. And that way has been barred ever since. The beauty and the glory of the book of Revelation is the beauty of Jesus' creation back in Genesis 1 and 2 is ultimately one day going to be restored at the end of this book. It's beautiful. It's glorious to know that that's where we're headed. God is renewing all of those things once again, and I can't wait until we get to the point where we get to study all of those things as well. It's systematically being restored, and in the meantime, we're given glimpses. Actually, in chapter 2 and 3, in these seven churches, as they all wrap up, as it talks about the reward, each one of them, just like at the beginning in, verse, or in the first verse of each one of them with the address, it's picking up something off of Jesus' glorified image there in chapter 1. Well, at the very end of each of these passages, in the last one, it talks about the, the reward. Each one of those picks up on something that is coming in the future, and it's pointing down the road. And this one right here, the very first one, is telling us about the tree of life. That one day we will eat of that tree of life. What a beautiful, beautiful picture that is. It's for all of those who are sold out, devoted, living out their first love for God. So, how's your love life? Spiritually speaking, how is your love life? It's very sobering to see that the Ephesians' hope wasn't found in their work, wasn't found in their theological knowledge. It's found in their love for God, their love for one another. How is your love life? How is your compassion for those who are in need, in Christ, in need of Christ around you? It's not just what you know or how hard you're working. The Pharisees worked very hard, and they knew a lot, and they have no part in Christ. Or it's very telling that when Jesus is asked, sum it up for us, would you? Sum up all of that law of God. What are we supposed to do? What does it say? It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
Doesn't say work hard. Doesn't even say make sure that you know all of what it says. It says, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. In this we can find hope. In this we can find life. So, if you're here and you've experienced that first love for yourself, but it's grown cold, and that's possible for every one of us, remember where you were, repent of where you are, and return to what can be. And you can begin to rekindle that. You know the steps. The only question is, are you willing to do so? Certainly, as we look in this book and we see where we're headed, and we see the significance of it all, we see the judgment that ultimately is coming, this should move us in our heart and our spirit to be serious. But you might be here and you might say, well, this whole first love stuff, I'm not even sure that I really get that because I've never really had that, at least not where God is concerned. But you can. You can come to experience that even in this moment. Would you please bow your heads with me? For those of you who might be here who would say, I'm not even sure I really understand this first love, that I've ever really had that when it comes to Jesus. You can do so right now. You can turn your heart and your life over to Jesus. You can make Him Lord. You can make Him Savior. You can establish that love out of which you can express your desire for relationship with Him. You can confess your sin. You can find forgiveness. And you can put your heart and your life in His hands. And I want to invite you and call you to do that. If you've never done so, maybe you'd like to just, just pray with me. Maybe I can help you in that. Or I'd love to talk to you later if you still have questions. But maybe for some of you, you're like, let's do this. Let's get on with it. You can just do that on your own if you wish, or you could say something just like this. Dear God, thank you for your love. Express to me. I recognize in the face of all of you've done that I'm sinful. I confess those sins. I ask for your forgiveness. I put my trust in you today. Fill me with your love. Fill me with your love. Father, I thank you for each one who is here. I thank you for the fact that you're moving in our midst. I thank you for what we have in this book, what it tells us of who you are, the picture that we have of the glorified Christ and how that inspires us and it encourages us and how in seeing who he is in his love, in his goodness, in his grace, in his majesty, in his glory, that it helps us to recognize who we are, and out of his love, reaching to us to give us hope and to give us life. Lord, for each one of us, I pray that you would establish that love or that you might rekindle that first love in us so that we wouldn't just coast by, so that we wouldn't be relying on something that isn't ultimately what it is that unites us to you, but that we might experience the fullness of who you are and who you've called us to be. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love, we pray. In the name of the glorified Jesus Christ, amen.